More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Listening between the lines. Listening is often thought of as passive, but effective listening goes beyond hearing. It is a skill as important as speaking and a vital part of communication. Beyond the benefits to professional and interpersonal relationships, deep listening also fosters confidence and facilitates clarity. According to author Oscar Trimbley, that clarity creates change. Oscar Trimbley's book, Breakthroughs, How to Confront Assumptions and Deep Listening Impact Beyond Words, has taught, mentored, and advised leaders in a diverse range of industries. The son of Italian immigrants, a young Oscar honed his listening and communication skills while playing cards with his classmates from around the world. Now executives call on Oscar to help them improve their communication skills through the power of listening. Enjoy this episode with Oscar. Oscar, before we start talking about the concepts of listening and deep listening, which we'll spend some time on today in this conversation, I would love to just understand a little bit more also about your own journey towards where you are today and why you are so passionate, why you've been so successful with what you're doing. That will be a fantastic way for us to start this conversation, I think. I think for me, I was very lucky, Ramia. I grew up in a community of migrants, 23 nationalities at my school, and we played card games against each other at the breaks because that was the way for us to have fun. That was the way for us to connect across languages. And I can't count cards. I'm, I'm not very good at math. But what I was very good at was reading body language. But I only realized that after the fact. So even from an early age, playing against the Portuguese speakers from Brazil or playing against the Chinese speakers from North Vietnam or playing against the Eastern Europeans from Poland, from Latvia, from Lithuania, or even the ones from Greece, from from Cyprus and uh, from Argentina speaking Spanish. I never really was lucky enough to speak a second language, despite the fact I'm the son of two first-generation migrants from Italy. And everybody wanted me on their team because I could see by the looks in people's eyes <laughs> what kind of cards they were holding. But I never really understood this, Ramia, till many decades later in my mm, life. Mm. About, about 14 years ago, though, um, a Microsoft vice president said to me in a very tense negotiation between Sydney, Seattle and Singapore, at the 20-minute mark, she looked across the table and Tracy said to me, Oscar, we need to speak after this meeting. And with that, all I thought is, how many weeks of salary have I got left in my bank account? <laughs> surely I'm going to get fired. So ominous. <laughs> About an hour and a half later, Tracy and I sat down and she said, look, I know you don't realize this, but at the 20-minute mark, you completely changed the trajectory of this meeting. And the way you listen was very powerful. And if you could teach the world how to listen, you could change the world. My challenge to you, Oscar, is can you code the way you listen? Now, Romeo, when you're at Microsoft, that means actually write software. Mm -hmm. So in that moment where all I was thinking about is, I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get fired, how much money is in the bank? All I could come up with in that profound moment that would change the rest of my life, I said to Tracy, do you mean code or code code? 
And she just looked at me funny and said, code, Oscar. I said, code. And in my head, what I thought she meant was just deconstruct it or somehow teach it. But she actually meant develop it into software. And that's something I'm doing in my quest to 100 million deep listeners in the world. And then probably eight weeks later, our chief operating officer said to me, Oscar, could you come to my team meeting? Because I want you to watch how I listen and I want you to debrief me on how I can improve. And I just looked at Brian and I said, are you serious? He <laughs> says, yeah, you're the best listener in the business. I want you to teach me how to do it better because I know I'm good at speaking, but I know where I can build my leadership muscle the fastest is by improving my listening. And thus the quest that leads you and I together to be speaking on this interview about deep listening. Well, I think it's wonderful. I feel like listening is something that we've been speaking about more as well in, in recent years. And I'm not entirely sure if this is because the wealth of information has lent to a wealth of commentary and has led to a wealth of interactions that we get to observe between millions of people every single day. And I think it shows every day, it proves every day how hard it is for people to actually listen to each other and actually try to understand what the other person is saying and not just react and uh, etc. I think like the internet has really <laughs> shone a remarkable light on this thing. But with that also has come this awareness and I guess this advocacy towards everything that ranges from mindfulness, you know, awareness, uh, listening, etc. But you talk about five myths around of listening. And I'd love to just like maybe start before we deep dive into the deep listening part. I'd love for you to elucidate mm. for us what it is that you define as the five myths of listening, because I think it's an important basis for this conversation. Yeah. So the first one is really simple. Listening's natural. The second one is focus on the speaker. The third one is listen carefully to what they say. The fourth one is summarize what they just said. And then finally, ask them questions about something mm -hmm. they've said. Now, all of those myths can be unpicked really quickly. 81% of us, Ramya, think that we have an above average IQ. 83% <laughs> of us think we're above average car drivers. And 86% of us think we are above average listeners. Now, statistically, we know that's impossible. <laughs> and our problem with listening is very simple. Well, it may be different. I'll ask you, Ramia. At your school, did you have a teacher who taught you how to listen? Absolutely not. But you had a teacher who taught you maths. Yes. And yet you spend more of your day listening than you do maths. So one of the great contradictions of communication is we spent the 20th century learning how to speak. By the second decade of most people's career, they've done between two and three courses on how to speak publicly. Mm. Any leader, any owner will have done that. Yet only 2% of leaders have ever in their entire career, let alone the first two decades, had any training in how to listen. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get four hours back a week, mm. improve your listening because it's 50% speaking, 50% listening. The more senior you are, the more responsibility you have, the bigger the portfolios that you look after, the more of your day you spend listening. So it, owners and executives are typically spending 83% of their day listening, yet only 2% of them know how. So there's many missed opportunities that are generated through a lack of listening. Mm -hmm. 
miss customers, great employees who feel ignored, go and join other organisations. You may not brief a supplier well, and that might mean that the cost of creating a new product might be much more expensive or it might take much longer. So for many of us, if we want four hours back in our week, we can double our listening productivity by simply knowing this rule. I speak at 125 words a minute, but I'm thinking at 900 words a minute. Now, just like a washing machine cleaning clothes, with 900 words stuck in my head, there's a lot of agitation going on. It's very sudsy. It's very dirty water. And it's only till the rinse cycle when I speak that I get some clarity on what I say. Mm -hmm. Now, the maths is really simple. One divided by nine is about 11%. Now, Ramia, if you went to a doctor and they said to you, good news, we've got a surgery that's going to fix your problem and you've got an 11% chance of surviving. (laughs) Now, I've got a doctor, Dr. John. I spend way too much time with Dr. John. If he gave me an 11% chance of surviving, I'd ask for a second opinion. Mm -hmm. Yet all of us all day, without any training in how to listen, spend our day taking a chance, an 11% chance of listening to somebody, we only listen to the first thing they say, which is not actually what they mean. So if you remember the 125-900 rule, what's more important than what they've said is what they haven't said. And we'll spend a bit more time later on talking about that. But I'm sure you've got some questions. I do. And I have a lot of follow-up questions because I feel like it's always so interesting because we can't talk about listening without talking about talking, right? Like Because yes. it's a very interesting phenomenon to me because the benefits of listening, once you apply it, are obvious. They're manifold. They improve relationships. I don't think anyone can argue with that, that being a, a better listener, if not a self-proclaimed good listener, as you just told us, statistically not probable, but a better listener or just a consciously improving listening skills has so mm. many benefits. So why don't more people do it. And my question for you there relates to, I guess, the feelings that we associate with talking. What is it that we feel, especially in the business context, we actually lose or are we afraid of losing by just listening? And do we believe we gain by talking? Please tell us a little bit more about how you feel about that. And they're going to have to bear with me because I'm going way back to 20 weeks inside your mother's womb. At 20 weeks inside your mother's womb, the first skill you learned was the skill to listen, not to talk, but to listen. And at 20 weeks, you can distinguish your mother's voice from any other sound outside in the real world. At 32 weeks, you can distinguish Beethoven from Bon Jovi from Beaver. So you can listen to a range of music and actually understand it's different. Yet, The minute we're born, we come into the world kicking and screaming and we think the only way we can be noticed is by speaking. And we spend the rest of our life forgetting our birthright, the ability to listen, Mm. by trying to fill space up with words by talking. Now, in ancient cultures, whether that's the Chinese cultures, the Middle Eastern traditions, the Inuit traditions of North America, the jungle traditions of Africa and South America, the Aboriginal and Maori and Polynesian traditions of the South Pacific, all of these deep, historic, multi-millennial cultures value silence much more than we do in the West today. 
In the West today, we don't value silence. We call it the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence. And we struggle. We get anxious with that silence and we feel like we need to fill it. And if we always understood the 125-900 rule, one of the most potent, one of the three things you can do to improve your listening is just to use silence. But for a lot of us, we're anxious. We feel like if I don't get my point across, I'm not going to be heard. Mm -hmm. It's really critical for me to be heard. So I'm going to fill up the space and make sure nobody fills that space so I will continue to talk. And one of the key four villains of listening is the interrupting listener. They want to solve the problem quicker, but they don't realize that they're solving the wrong problem, Mm -hmm. as an example. So for many of us in the West, we just need to become a little bit more comfortable with pausing, a little bit more comfortable with silence. In China, in Korea, in, in Japan, silence is a sign of wisdom, a sign of respect, and a sign of authority. Mm. Yet in the West, we want to fill in that space, Ramia, and this is where that anxiety comes about. Can I give you three practical tips to unpick and use that unsaid really skillfully? The first one is, here's two phrases to listen out for, because when you use these phrases, what the other person will do while they speak is they'll take a deep sigh and they'll say, you know what? What we should be really talking about is, or you know what's more important than what I've said so far, or you know what we really need to focus on that's going to make a big difference across the generations. Mm -hmm. And here are the phrases, and they're quite short, so you can jot them down. The first phrase is, tell me more. Mm -hmm. The next phrase is, what else? And the third phrase, you need to listen really carefully for this one. It sounds like this. And that's the pause and silence. Now, if you do that, you'll create an environment between the speaker and the listener where you don't feel rushed to jump in. But more importantly, you talk about what matters rather than the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. Now, unless you're a very skilled communicator or an actor who's rehearsed their lines Mm -hmm. really well, there's an 11% chance that the first thing you say is what you mean. And that's why it's so important to listen for what's not said if you want to unpick some of the really complex multi-generational problems we're all probably grappling with as business owners. This brings us maybe a little bit to the context of the family-owned company, for instance, or the multi-generational company. I mean, I guess in many respects within any uh, business, you will deal with multiple generations. But we talk about Mm. obviously companies that are interested in lasting for a very long time. Often this is linked to Uh, family ownership and families being capable in holding that ownership for generations to come. So uh, when we talk about listening within the family context, especially when that family is within a business setting, and and I think I can speak for for many of our listeners and, and for myself, is that these situations, while also hugely rewarding, can be fraught with emotional tension. They can be Mm. fraught with uh, patterns that we take with us from our childhood roles that we try to uh, defend ourselves against. So um, I don't want to perceived in the business the way I'm being perceived in the family setting. I don't want to be perceived as weak when actually here I want to be strong or the other way around. I want to be soft mm. here and not hard there. So 
When it comes to, and I think we are being taught a lot of the time that communication, and as you very well tell us here, is that's a misunderstanding, but it, we're being taught a lot of the time that we need to learn how to talk about these things. So yeah. I wanted to ask you within this setting, within this setting of like, you know, you're trying to redefine your own role within a family business, or you're trying to improve your communication with the older generation. What role does the, does the listening and the silence play in that particular setting, do you think? Like how to deploy that power within the family ownership setting? So one of the things you point to is level three listening. It's listening around context. Mm. And this is really critical because context is about patterns and backstories. Mm. And one of the frustrations across multi-generational familial workplaces is that the younger generation quite often gets frustrated with what they feel is a pattern of unknowing or historic belief held by the founder or the eldest generation. And some of this might play out at the dinner table where they say, oh, they always say the same thing about the same topic. Mm. And what we want to do, the younger generation has a responsibility as much as the older generation. When they get frustrated about a particular pattern is notice when they're getting frustrated and use that as a cue to go, I need to get closer to understanding that pattern rather than further away. And here's a great question that you can ask the founder or the elder of the family business that holds this really tightly. It's really important for us to be tight with cost control. It's really important for us to set aside money for a day where times aren't as good because they've been through bad times. Mm. Or it's really important that we minimize our risk or it's really important that we crush the competition, whatever that strongly held belief is. If you ask the question to that person, when was the first time you formed this belief? Mm, mm, mm what will happen will be an explosion for both the person speaking and the person listening. It will be like driving down a very fast freeway mm. with the rain pouring and all of a sudden you've got the windshield wipers working because all of a sudden that gives permission to the speaker to say, when I was 16 years old, mm. we were on hard times. Mm. And during those hard times, we had to manage every one of our costs. And my grandfather taught me that a penny saved is a penny earned. And all of a sudden, this tightly held belief has a context. But very few people take the time to understand that backstory. Mm. And yet in understanding the backstory, we not only give permission to the elder to speak to where that idea was formed, we give the opportunity for the elder to reflect, is that belief still relevant going forward? this person is now running a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar business, in that moment, they will reflect on that story was the past. Is that story the future? Mm. So the big question we can always ask is when was that belief? When did you first discover that whatever that thing might be, we want to crush the competition or we want to save money, whatever that is, those tightly held beliefs is typically where the tension is. Because we're not skillful at asking how or what-based questions, too many of the time we use questions that have the word why in it. Oscar, tips for people who are listening to this. They are listening. And I'm not sure if it's deep listening, but they're listening. 
people are listening to this who want to start today implementing yeah. this, what are the things that you can give them on their way to uh, overcome maybe this feeling of like, oh my God, this is going to be hard. Like, how am I going to achieve this? Like, how can you uh, encourage our listeners and our readers today? And what kind of changes can they make right now that will help yeah. them on their path towards becoming better listeners and more successful in their businesses as a consequence? Look, for a lot of us, uh, as I was speaking to a Japanese company about nine months ago, and the CEO stood up to do to introduce me, and he said, what Oscar's about to explain is very simple, but very difficult to practice. Mm. So what I'm about to tell you is three simple things. Number one, switch off your cell phone, your laptop, your iPad, anything that buzzes, beeps, vibrates, and notifies you. In our database of 1,400 listeners that we've been tracking for three years, 81% of them get stuck because they're distracted even before they commence listening. Mm. They are lost even before they turn up. A Microsoft president flew from Seattle to Sydney, nearly a 24-hour flight. Peter sat in a room with me with 20 CEOs, and I'll never forget this. As he sat down at the prime position at the table, at the head of the table, he stood up. He put his cell phone out of his top pocket. And he switched it off. He walked over to his bag and put it in his bag. And in that moment, he completely captured the attention of the room because 17 out of the 20 other CEOs did exactly the same thing. Mm. And he created a completely different listening environment. So tip number one, switch off the devices. Just be present in the moment and you will be surprised what you'll learn. Tip number two, the brain struggles with listening because we haven't been taught. So to set up your brain to optimal listening, drink a glass of water every half an hour you're having a conversation with people. Mm. A hydrated brain is a listening brain. The brain is only 5% of body mass, yet it consumes 26% of blood sugar. Mm. <laughs> Most people in the workplace go through the workplace dehydrated. You should be drinking between two and three liters of water a day. Most of us drink probably that in coffee. For every glass of coffee you're going to drink, drink a glass of water. <laughs> and the third tip is really simple. Take three deep breaths before you get to the conversation, whether that's on the phone, whether that's face-to-face, -face, because most of us have a radio station playing in our head that's on a different frequency to the conversation we need to be in. Most of us turn up to a conversation with browser tabs open in our mind and it's clogging up the memory of our own mind so we're not available to listen. Those three simple tips, remove distractions, breathe deeply, and drink water will double your listening productivity immediately. And what our database tells us, our research, 1,400 people, you can get up to four hours on average back a week because you're communicating effectively the first time rather than having multiple meetings to go over misunderstandings. Those three simple tips are easy to do. They're difficult to practice. Wonderful, but yeah, very practical advice. I do think everyone is capable of drinking more water, switching off their devices and breathing. I think uh, these are very easy to implement, but hopefully also will yield a lot of results for our listeners. Oscar, thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights with us. I think very valuable advice for anyone in any kind of life situation. So uh, thanks again for coming on uh, the Family Business Voice and for sharing your insights. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.